Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. This is a well, it's a normal episode, but it's special because we are not recording in person. Yeah, first first time trying to do this remotely, so apologies in advance if there's any little technical hiccups or the audio quality isn't uh, our normal thing. Hopefully, we don't have to do this for too long, but we'll we'll work it out as we go. And uh, we are actually. For, for people in the future or distant future who forget that, uh, you know, most of the world is under some sort of quarantine, that this episode is occurring during um, our state's shelter in place is what they call it because they don't want to use the Q word. Um, but we, we're going to try and continue to make some episodes while we're, we're stuck in place. And unfortunately for me, my, my county is a little bit stricter than Jason's. I've yeah, been restricted so... to uh, a five-mile radius for recreational activity from my home. We have, yeah, we have slightly different, we live one county apart, or, you know, I live close to the line, but um, yeah, Todd's County is a bit more iron fist with uh, some of the regulations, and uh, my county's like, just stay six feet apart, it'll all be fine. Todd's County is, uh, you know, sticking stick into the letter of the law yeah closing the county parks yep so and so I, I guess that's the motivation for this episode and in part um is discussing or perhaps debating the top three things that you should do as a cyclist if you're training indoors right so i asked todd to come up with three things that he thought were the most important things to do if you're stuck in your house or you have limited access to riding your bike outside I know everyone considers rightly or wrongly that the most important thing to becoming a better cyclist is to go ride your bike. That's Eddie Merckx's favorite thing to say. And if you don't have the opportunity to go ride your bike, I can still ride my bike as long as I ride south. And uh, people like Todd can't leave the house or you know they have to stay within a five mile radius of their house. And um, how do we... You know, how do we get the most out of our time in this situation? Another way to extrapolate this is say, you know, one of my friends who's on my club team, he he goes to China for his engineering position once for like a month at a time, every six months or so, because he has to go to the factory and make sure the manufacturing process is running correctly. How does he maintain his fitness or how, how does he continue to develop as a cyclist while he's stuck in a situation where he won't be able to ride his bike. This hopefully this stuff can also be extrapolated to a situation like that. All right. So I guess we should, uh, should jump in and just list off the things. Sure. Or we could go one at a time. Go one, can, one at a time. I could tell you why you're wrong. All right. Well, I feel like it's requisite. Uh, although the, the situation you just proposed would remove this from the equation, but I, I do feel that you should ride your bike uh, indoors, be it, uh, if you have the opportunity. And I'm not going to constrain it to any one type of indoor riding. So I think different types of indoor riding have different values that you can take from them. So whether that's on a smart trainer and that's what you do and you like to do those lifts or you like to do uh, very focused intervals on a smart trainer, great. I think that's fine. Um, on the flip side, like if you like to ride rollers, and, and work on your skill and work on the smooth of your pedal stroke and your technique there, I think that's great too. So I, if I have to pick my three things, and that's one of the things that I'm going to put on that list, is some sort of indoor bike riding. And I think you as a rider have to know where your weaknesses lie. And you know, if you have the opportunity, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I guess, to have a smart trainer and rollers. And so I can pick depending on what my, what my needs are and what I'm looking to get out of a given workout. But I'd say, you know, that's part of like having the coach that we talked about many times before and you know, knowing yourself as a rider is where can I gain some value doing some indoor riding specifically. So your list includes riding the trainer or riding the rollers. And I mm -hmm. did not include that in my list. And the reason for that is because, well, one, we know that your uh, anaerobic fitness is, can be built up in a six week period. And I don't know anyone who's planning to race in the next six weeks. So we know that from an anaerobic perspective, there isn't much value in riding your bike on the trainer if you're not going to be using those that anaerobic capacity in the near future. And developing your aerobic capacity is, and I think that you should develop your aerobic capacity doing long miles, three, four hour rides, see our 
series of episodes on you know base miles and endurance training. And I think both of those two scenarios, really long miles or uh, working on your VO2 max or even shorter efforts, there's not much justification for doing either of those types of efforts at this point in time. So I would say almost there's no training to be done on the bike during this period. So riding your bike may not be that important in terms of your long-term development. See, so I think I, I differ on that for a couple of reasons. So one, the technique aspect of the rollers, I think you can always improve your technique. So I, I think that's, you know, independent of the aerobic or anaerobic work that's getting done there. I think there's a technique value on the rollers. So, yeah, I would agree that, um, working on your pedal stroke. So I prefer the square, uh, working on either coming over the top, the downstroke coming under the bottom or the upstroke working on each of those individually can be a good activity to do on the bike to improve your development rollers. Like you said, they help you stabilize with, uh, a dynamic, uh, you know, the ground is moving underneath of you. So you have to stabilize your core and uh, work on, uh, delivering the power equally and consistently as opposed to trainers where you can just kind of do whatever you want. I, I think those are good reasons to ride your bike. So I think the other, the other part that I, I hang on to, and you can, you know, you can debate this with me is there's some evidence around riding fasted, right? And so I think the trainer can be useful for that because you can, you can peg the wattage right in that zone and you can do the fasted riding and you can maybe eke out some, some long-term changes and, you know, hopefully your, your mitochondria and perhaps your fat burning and your efficiency as a rider. So that's sort of my, my rationale. Like now, yes, you could do, you could do intervals and you may do intervals, you know, who knows when we're going to see the end and um, the loosening of some of these restrictions and actually be able to get back to racing. Um, so I can see, I don't know when it is. I don't think, you know, it's probably not in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, contemporarily, but maybe in a month or three months from now, who knows, hopefully sooner rather than later, when we get that green light and say like, yep, racing's going to happen again, then that, that's where you're going to probably do that indoor training. You may not be able to hmm. go outdoors yet, but then you can do that indoor training to build up your system. So I think, I think it can work. And I don't know, for me, it's also like mental mental health. I'm not going to get a whole lot of like you know, five, five miles from my house is there's actually some halfway decent rides I can do, but, uh, just getting, getting in and doing that pedaling. I think is also Yeah. I, I would say, um, you know, riding your bike does feel good. You get the big endorphin rush. You can definitely get some value out of working on your pedal strokes, get some value out of the technique work. You can also get value out of the fasted riding to develop the changes that you want in your, at the cellular level. And also you can use that fasted riding to help this would be a great time to drop some pounds if uh, maybe your work obligations go down because suddenly you, I don't know, you find yourself more productive working from home because, you know, there's not all the uh, office chit chat or whatever. And you you have a lot more control over your system, things like that. You This could be a good time to lose some weight. So you could do that one hour fasted ride and then, you know, have a light meal afterwards that can help you um, drop some excess weight if you want to come out of having to stay away from outdoor riding you want to come out super lean so you you get a little extra advantage on the hills these things can all be good i would say to remember though that i don't think your aerobic and anaerobic fitness matter right now and realizing that and being okay with letting it disappear and looking at where we can improve i think that's a good thing to keep in mind and and don't be disappointed in the same way as Coming back from the off season, you shouldn't look at your power numbers for the first two weeks. And don't be disappointed when they're like abysmally low. It's the same thing right now is you should let your fitness wane. That's okay. But there's other things to improve on when we're not as hyper-focused on fitness that will make you better in the long term. Fair, fair enough. So All right, what's your what's your number? Well, it doesn't have to necessarily be number yeah, one. Yeah, I, I just have three things. Option? So if, if we want to keep on this idea of what can we do with our time while we let our fitness wane? I have um, figuring out what muscles are dysfunctional and working to fix them. So I think a lot of people, especially amateur cyclists, will have less than functional, you know, all of our muscles will not work perfectly all the time. And a lot of that is because we all sit too much, we all drive to work or 
um, you know, we, we use our muscles and they you know, start to get tight. We lose mobility. Also, when we ride all the time, we lose mobility. Maybe our fit's a little bit off and we, we start to get stiffness. And these things prevent our muscles from working as well as they can. If we figure out what muscles are not working optimally, we stretch them, we strengthen them, we get them to be uh, you know, flexible and also strong and not limit us, that can really go a long way in the long term to making sure that we get as much power into the pedals as we can and make sure that we're working you know, in the right direction and not... Uh, I, I think a lot of people who don't have the most functional muscles, you see them really, they're really trying to go hard and uh, the bike's not really going anywhere. And if we figure out how to get all of our muscles to work well together and work functionally together, we can get a lot of improvement out of the bike without even having to do any intervals or work on our aerobic fitness. Yeah, so kind of improving your efficiency, right? Or removing anything that's holding you back in a certain way. And so, well, Todd, you, you are the PT of the duo, but um, how, you know, how can someone figure out what muscles are dysfunctional from home? And, uh, and then my recommendation would be, if I have a protocol that I've used and I've recommended to other people is um, three by 30 seconds of stretching for the muscle. And I would recommend doing that three times a day. And so it ends up being six minutes of total work mm -hmm. time. But um, if you do that for one muscle, three times a day, th three sets of 30 seconds, you will see so much difference in your mobility and your function of that muscle. And so like if someone says, oh, I've always had tight hamstrings, it's like, well, try this. Like it's only six minutes of stretching a day, but it will like, dramatically increase the function of that muscle. And I, I think that's... Um, that's not too hard to do, but I think what's hard is to know what muscle isn't working in order to stretch the right muscle. And, and you see this all the time, people at the gym, you know, th this person can already touch their head to their knee and they keep stretching their hamstring. Like, come on, like your hamstrings are not tight. We should be focusing on something else. And But people love to, you know, do what they're good at. So if, if you have some recommendations on how someone could figure out what muscles could be optimized more for cycling, what, what muscles are tight, a little bit dysfunctional. And then, uh, you know, you have to find an associated stretch, stretch it out, and then also do some associated strengthening to make that muscle more functional. You kind of just rolled in my other two things there, which were stretching and strengthening. Okay, shocking. well, we have coming, overlap. Coming, coming from the PT, right? Um, so, I mean, I think we did an episode a while ago where we talked about self-tests uh, that you could mm -hmm. do. Uh, and so that, that would be maybe a good idea to look at some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, like simple things. Yeah, sure. Can you, can you touch the floor is a decent test of your posterior chain mobility, but the, how you do it also matters. Right. And a lot of times you're sure, like you can touch the floor, but your hamstrings are still tight because you got a bunch of mobility from your spine. Yep. Um, and so that's not a, it's not necessarily a good indication. So you have to be cognizant of how you're doing that. And, where am I bending from? And okay, well, keep your spine straight and then bend from the hips. And how does that change and what happens? And then how far do you go? What, what angle do you have? Is your, you know, your legs perpendicular to your trunk? Like you've got your trunk horizontal or is your trunk 45 degrees from, you know, from the vertical and that's as far as it goes and your hamstrings are locked up there. So and I, I think a lot of it, and I, I see this all the time in, in folks, like if you go to the gym, you see the person or at the park, they got their like legs swung way up on a bench that's super high and they're stretching their hand. They think they're stretching their hamstring. Their hamstring's not that flexible. They're stretching all sorts, like all sorts, all sorts of other things are moving, but they're way past the point of getting a hamstring stretch anymore. So I think it's some of it's just being specific in how you try to assess those muscles and understand like, okay, your hamstring runs from, you know, your basically your buttock under there for your tuberosity down behind your knee. And so, it can only do so much. It only really, it, you know, it does move multiple planes, but primarily it's going to be a hip extensor, and primarily that's you know bending of the trunk on the legs there at the hip. And so any, anything else, like if your spine starts moving to help your arms get down to your toes, your hamstring isn't moving to do that. Yeah. So so when you test your mobility, make sure that you're not stealing extra mobility from other joints. Like I. Uh, uh, we're, we keep hitting the hamstrings, but like the Frankenstein or toy soldier uh, dynamic stretch where you kick your leg out in front of you, 
there's so many people who will, you know, tuck the hips under in order to get more length, or they'll bend the knee, the opposite side knee to get a little more space. And um, yeah. being yeah, so around the back a little yeah, bit yeah. there, and yeah. So so being really um, sort of policing yourself on how much flexibility do I really have if I keep everything, you know, if I don't steal a little bit from other areas, and I. On my list for other things that, if you had more about this, um, I was just going to say for the the hamstring, a really an easy and honest way to do it is doing something called looking at the popliteal angle, and so that's the angle from behind the knee. And the way the way you can do this and keep yourself honest is you you lie down flat on your back, you you hug one one thigh, so you you bring your thigh up so it's vertical, and you start with your knee bent about ninety degrees. And you just slowly straighten up your knee. So mm-hmm. your, your your foot extends towards the ceiling. And it's going to stop at a certain point, right? Because it's what's going to happen is you're going to feel pressure in your hand as your hand as your hip wants to extend, as your leg wants to go down towards the floor. And when you start to feel that, that's as far as that hamstring wants to go. And then you can measure that and yeah. visualize that, what what have you. And you can see that change over time. And it you have to, you can't cheat that, or at least it's harder than try and touch your toes yeah um, it's very it's very specific very isolated in, in that manner and and i would say for other um other muscles like for example the hip flexors it's throwing your femur backwards so you know be honest with how far your femur can go behind your hips and uh, for me it's actually pretty short and you know that's okay but uh, i'm not going to rotate my hips to try and get a little extra space to deny the fact that i have tight hip flexors i know i have tight hip flexors that's why i'm working on them and mm-hmm. um, you know same with glutes the glute stretch uh, you see all kinds of twisting and uh, movement to try and you know touch your forehead to the floor but in reality you should just embrace the fact that you have tight glutes and um, you know then then work to improve them so uh, it's in terms of things I had on my list of how to tell if a muscle is dysfunctional is I, I also had uh, like poking around like a self-massage or even foam rolling I know uh, some people when they foam roll you know the, everybody has like that one area that they foam roll and they go oh that's the spot you know and uh, if if the spot is um, you know right down the middle of your quads then your rectus femoris is too tight and that's something that you should work on and if it's more functional you'll probably get more power out of the bike that's the kind of the big emphasis i want to make here is now is a great time to work on these areas of your body that you know are tight or you know hurt or they bother you a little bit on the bike and yeah it's not enough to really you know make an effort to fix them but they're definitely slowing me down or they're causing me a bit of pain now's a great time to roll those out, stretch those out, and also strengthen them so then they're more resistant to that fatigue in order for you to not have that issue when you can get back on the bike. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's one of those things with foam rolling. It's like you shouldn't hit a spot in the muscle that makes you want to jump off the foam roller. Fairly uniform. It might be a little uncomfortable because there's a lot of, you know, depending on the size of the roller and your, your body mass and how much supported you are, but you shouldn't hit a point and want to jump off the thing. And if you do, that's usually an indication that that muscle's dysfunctional. Yeah, there's some there's certainly something going on there. That's not that would not be my expected normal state. Yeah. So um, that that's the one that I had with regards to uh, this is such a great opportunity. Uh, it's it's almost a forced off season, and the off season is a great time to reset your body and work on these things that you're not able to work on during the season. We we can't fix our body when we're also trying to do two by twenties twice a week. So and, and now's the time to do it. And it's, it's almost like a, a mid season break where normally say it's February and you develop a little bit of a weird thing in your hip. You have to wait all the way till September to try and, you know, really tackle it. Now's a great time for a mid season tackling of, you know, if you have an issue or, and, you know, to even extrapolate this even further, go work on your fit. Uh, now's the time to, if you are going to do trainer rides, go see what it feels like to push your saddle forward half a centimeter or, you know, back half a centimeter or mm-hmm. raise your, you know, I, I always wondered if I could get more power out of a higher saddle. Like, yeah, go do a half hour ride with your saddle up. 
you know, three millimeters. See if you like it. Um, yep. Nice controlled environment too, right? Yeah. And, and you can bail as soon as you don't like it. So as opposed to going out for a ride and you're like, well, I'm five miles from home. What am I going to do? You can, you know, it, doing it on the trainer, you can just get off as soon as you don't like it anymore. So another thing that I had on my list was um, dialing in your bike. So it takes so much time for you to figure out exactly what you want on your bike. And something that a lot of high-level cyclists, especially racers, will do is they make sure that their bike is exactly how they want it. We only have so many controllables in a bike race, and one of them is what you have on your bike and you know what equipment you're using, how heavy is it, how functional is it, uh, what lube am I using, what bearings do I have, all of these things. And it takes so much time to research, you know, what kind of shoe covers do I want? Which aero helmet do I want? Um, what wheels are, you know, aerodynamic enough, but not too heavy, but also have good reviews on their durability. And there's just so many potential options. And if you're not able to ride your bike or you're not willing to ride your bike too much during this time, it's a great time to figure out exactly what you want your bike to look like and exactly how it should be for you to be the optimal racer you can be. That's that's fair. I mean, there, there's just so many options on the bike. Right? I mean, just the bike before you even start talking about the equipment that you have and shoes and helmet and sunglasses and all those different things. Uh, yeah, you could spend you could spend an eternity looking it all up if you if you have the yeah. time. Well, yeah. So that now that you mention it, my warning is, you know, just get good enough. You don't need to get the best. And first off, nobody should pay for the best everything um, because that's outside most of our budgets. But um, they're, they're, you know, get within 5% or 3% of the top and you'll be fine at any amateur level. I was just going to say the the best is also exceeds our ability to extract the performance value from it for most of us yeah yeah um and and so i think the idea that you should have in mind if if you are racing or if even if you do group rides on the weekend like everyone hates to um to ride with the guy whose whose chain is super noisy you know on the group ride or um your brakes it's also you know embarrassing to have your brakes squealing as you all descend together and uh, nobody wants their bike to go wrong. And especially for a racer, you can't have your bike go wrong or it's probably the end of your race. So instead of putting in the time during the race to figure out what's wrong, you have to put in the time in advance in order to ensure that to the best of your ability, nothing goes wrong. And that is, that is so vitally important at the top level of racing that you know that they they literally hire someone to be the mechanic and if anything goes wrong, they go right to that person and they say, why wasn't this rider's bike as good as it could possibly be? And so it's so important. And now is a great time to invest the time. And on top of uh, doing the research on what equipment you might want, it's also a great time to clean your bike. Because I know most of you do not clean your bike as much as you should, including myself, um, because we all want to ride our bike, but we all don't necessarily want to maintain it. And... If you can't ride your bike, clean it, right? Yeah, and I think that's also a, an invaluable skill to learn to a certain degree. Right? You don't have to be a master mechanic. Uh, you know, you you probably should own a torque wrench in 2020 because there is some carbon bit that has a torque spec that you don't want to screw up and crack. Uh, but just learning some of those little skills, I think, are, is so invaluable. And like learning how to clean your bike appropriately, every rider should know that. Every rider should know how to go through, properly clean each part of their bike, properly lubricate each part of their bike. I'm not talking about tearing out, you know, rebuilding the hub and replacing the bearings, but like, how do you clean your chain? Make sure you get it lubed appropriately. I think that's probably the biggest one. Maybe, well, cables are less present now, um, yeah. but uh, maybe for your brakes, depending if you're just brakes or yet, uh, probably I'd say bleeding a brake is like the border of like, yeah, it's kind of complicated and probably if you're not um, super into that stuff you probably shouldn't go down that path but just the basics of day-to-day -day maintenance you should learn and be able to perform on your own 
So actually, I have higher standards than you do in terms of what I expect out of other writers. Um, I had said that I think everyone should do a deep clean of their bike, basically just short of an overhaul. So I think that, and my philosophy philosophy with this is that you should be really intimate with your bike and you can understand your bike better, you can appreciate it more, and you can also learn more about what its advantages and disadvantages are. If you know that your shifting isn't great in this one area of the bike, you can use that to help you understand why, you know, what's going wrong or um, it, it just gives you more confidence and more knowledge in the bike itself. So uh, in terms of a list of things that I think that you should do if you have a week, two, two weeks, a month off, then um, well, one, you can go to a bike shop in our area, at least bike shops are considered essential businesses because mm -hmm. um, some people use bikes to get to their essential jobs. So they need to be able to fix those bikes if, um, if, if needed. So um, you can take it to the bike shop and they can do, it's usually called like an overhaul or uh, something like that. And it's, it's like 200 bucks for them to completely take your bike apart and to put it all in the parts washer, uh, repla replace all the grease and all the bearings. And then usually they make even more money because the person needs to replace their chain rings or their chain or uh, their brake pads or something. So, um, but when your bike comes out of it, it comes out really dialed. So um, if you have the money or you are too lazy to do it yourself, then there is the bike shop option. But for the rest of us, and, and I think that it's also enjoyable to maintain your bike as well because you you know start to appreciate it more. But I would say for a short list of the deep cleaning, you can replace your brake and shifter cables and housing. Um, you might need to get a, a cable cutter tool if you don't have one of those. Um, you can also bleed hydraulic brakes. And if I'm correct in this, Todd, most mountain bikers know how to bleed brakes. Is that correct? Yeah, because hydraulic brakes have been around for a little bit longer uh, on mountain bike than a road bike. So I, I would say, yeah, the majority will be somewhat familiar with it. So I, it's, it's not that hard, to be honest. You just have to be patient. So I'm uh, I'm like on the fence about bleeding your own hydraulic brakes just because I have a mechanic who's really good at it. So, it's, you know, the, the ease of accessibility to someone doing it who, who really knows how to do it is... Um, that would be a reason not to do it yourself, but at the same time, it's not that hard to do it yourself. So, um, learning could be could be a good uh, tool to and, have. And honestly, now is the time to learn that skill. It is not to be done the night before a race if you've never done it before. Like yeah. I, I would be confident doing the night before race. I've done it so many times, not night before race, but I've done it just so many times. But you know, this is something like, hey, you got plenty of time. If you can't ride tomorrow, it's probably really not. like if you can't ride tomorrow because you didn't get the, enough fluid in the line. It's probably really not a big deal. Just take the 30 minutes and, and walk through it and bleed again. We also have the benefit of YouTube. You can watch a video of somebody bleeding a break and like go back and forth as yeah. they're doing it and do the same step and, and work through it and actually learn it. So yeah, if you were ever, if you were ever like, Hey, I want to learn how to do this. This is a great time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I also have putting all your components in a degreaser bath. So I would recommend Purple Power or Simple Green are the two degreasers that you can get at Lowe's or uh, wherever and um, put all your components in some water diluted solution. And this is a great way to get all of the road grime out of the joints of them. And if you've been complaining about your shifting, this could be the, the ticket to uh, just opening the joints up a bit and, and making that shifting a bit smoother. And... Um, on top of the components, you when, when they're done degreasing, you need to dry them off. Uh, you can run them underwater, and then you want to put triflow or another thin lube on the joints. And so you're basically flushing out the grimy lube or the grimy stuff and then putting in fresh lubrication so they can get a really smooth shift. And this is part of, like I said, no surprises, no issues on race day. If you haven't cleaned your shifter in a year, you have no idea if it's going to shift on race day. But if you cleaned it a month ago, oh yeah, this thing's solid. I, you know, I have no confidence issues with my equipment. You know, the other thing that actually works really well for the the drivetrain parts is uh, a little bit of OxyClean, some warm water. Okay. It, it's shocking how much stuff it pulls out of the little nooks and crannies that you couldn't get to. 
Yeah, and, and it is actually really important to regrease it because you are removing so much oil that if you don't regrease yep. it, you'll just have metal on metal rubbing and uh, that'll degrade pretty quickly. And uh, I would say you could take apart the headset. That can be good. Some people have headset clicking. And if you look up a YouTube video on how to uh, just reset it and regrease it, that can be really valuable to get rid of those clicks. And I would say leave your bottom bracket. And that's usually because um, that's the most complicated part of the bike and usually need special tools. And they usually get the biggest guy in the bike shop to take the bottom brackets off because half the time they're stuck. Um, also swap your dirty bar tape because I know all of you have a uh, pretty gross bar tape probably. So especially if you've been riding on the trainer, it's yeah. really sweaty and disgusting. Yeah. If you've been riding on the trainer, put a towel down over your bars that can really save the bar tape. And also the, um, the aluminum, if you have aluminum bars starts to erode from the, um, electrolytes from the sweat. So be careful not to, uh, not to keep some people who have trainer only bikes will the aluminum will really start to degrade to the point where the bars could break any day that you're riding so be careful with stuff like that and um, at the very least if you're not going to do any of these really difficult uh, cleaning things at least make sure that you clean off the frame so also like simple green or even uh, i think i've used clorox wipes before when i was uh, at a bike race and it was a muddy day and I had another race the next day. You just go to Walgreens and get some Clorox wipes, and that seemed to work okay. Um, at least, you know, wipe it off cosmetically, and then also check all your bolts are tight. If you're going to – those are the minimum yes. standards for, for me. So, so, get, so get yourself a torque wrench. They're, yeah. They're really not that expensive given the consequence of not using one. Yep. On and, both ends, right? Under-torqued or over-torqued. And you can get um, – like a, a four, five, six individual torque wrenches. And they're they're like little handles with um, the bolt on the end for each of them. So you'd have one separate one for four, five, and six. And then it's usually a standardized torque value for each of those bolts. So you mm-hmm. just turn it until it clicks and then you stop. And it's, it's like as easy as can be. And yeah, you have no qualms with, is this thing going to shatter underneath me because I over tightened it or under tightened right, it? Or slip or something yeah. or... And I've heard a lot of stories from other riders who they've erred on the side of it being under torqued and then it'll slip and, um, you know, there goes their, their knee joint for the, for the next month as they try and recuperate. Um, yeah. Slipping, slipping is just as bad as outright failing sometimes. But we're, we're back to the classic idea in cycling, which is, too little is not good. Too much is not good. We're looking for the right amount. And that goes for training, nutrition, all this stuff. So uh, let's see, what, what other notes do I have for um, dialing your in your bike? I guess the, the last thing I have is, uh, I, so I worked in a bike shop for three years. So I that's why I have a little more confidence with uh, diving in on these things. But uh, the big rule of thumb that we used in my shop was if you have to make noise when you're tightening something, it's too tight. Yeah, that's a that's pretty fair. I mean, I, I worked at shop for many years too, and I would I would generally agree with that, especially around carbon parts. And if you have to make noise when you're loosening the part, you probably didn't put enough grease in there when you when you tightened it. Yeah. So, well, that's if someone drags it out of their shed after like two years, then uh, yeah, you might have to make some noise. But uh, yeah, for all like the stem bolts and um, even the bolts that are like the derailleur bolt, all those things just hand tight they're not gonna and that's why you have to check them frequently because you don't crank the snot out of them and you also um you know don't under tighten them but just you know check them regularly the bottom bracket's the only uh the only breaking of this rule is the bottom bracket because that thing can just get absolutely stuck in place cassette lock rings can be pretty tight too yeah that's true so that's all i have for dial your bike um for my last, I'm, we might have the, the same last uh, one. I have balance and core, actually. And and actually, my notes for that are, let Todd explain. So I, I made one of my items on my list is actually intended for you to to help educate us on how balance and core can help a cyclist. Now, and, and that's like a, the reason I thought of this is this is something that mountain bikers, cyclocross riders really have a lot of experience with and are really good at. And roadies are quite bad at. So how, how do we how do we learn from a mountain biker 
and the importance of balance and core. All right, so that's that's fair. I mean, I guess I when I broke mine out, I I put core under strengthening, but so so be it. Uh, I guess we get, I get to talk about it now since you're you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, so I feel like I've said this before, right? Like the 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 importance of core comes back to uh, Newtonian physics, right? Uh, action and reaction, right? And so if you're pushing down to the pedal, the pedal's pushing up against you, which is pushing up into your leg, and in theory wants to rotate your pelvis at the saddle. Um, of course, you have two legs, and but th that's really what your core is doing is it's providing resistance so your leg can push down and give you a stable platform and then connect that to the handlebar so you can steer the bike and, or keep the bike upright, but not have the bike move sort of out of plane, that the bike is going to continue to go forward as you're pedaling and applying those forces. That's this is like the simplest way for me to think about like, why is it important that my core is strong? So I can push down the pedals. When my bike goes forward rather than having me push down the pedals and my butt come up, up off the seat. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's the simplest thing is like, well, power transfer is why core matters. I think balance is a little bit different. Um, and I think like, yes, core definitely factors into balance. If your core strength is really poor, more likely than not, your balance is also not fantastic because those things, those two things are related. If you stand on one leg, you have to engage your core to keep yourself balanced. Um, you can, you can get by without it, but it doesn't look great. You shift, you usually shift to one side to, to offset. So uh, I think balance comes in more with bike handling skills. And I think it's more um, reactionary. And it's also, I think, about understanding where your body is in space and how, how to balance yourself on the bike and really how the bike moves, um, moves beneath you, and which I think comes into play maybe a little bit more in mountain biking, a little bit more in cyclocross riding, mm -hmm. downhill mountain biking especially, uh, and it's being able to, to react to the forces they're placed on you. And I think that's really with the balance training. Like when, you, when you see the stuff that the high level mountain bikers are doing, it's really about reaction and staying balanced. Um, the necessary like walking on a tightrope type of balance. Right? It's like, how do, how do I react and counter these forces and still keep myself centered over, over my bike or, or over the ball or balance board that I'm standing on? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's like um, having the ability to instantaneously squeeze these, uh, these stabilizer muscles when needed. And and relax when not needed, but then when they're needed, we we need a, we need you right away. And uh, I would say this is useful for road cyclists, for cornering, for sprinting, uh, even jostling for position in the race. There's a lot of moments of you know instability and you know lack of confidence in you know if if you're just a triathlete and you're just biking down the road. Like you should probably have a strong course so that you can keep the bike moving forward, but you don't need this instantaneous, uh, you know, dynamic changes in your stability. But if you're a crit monster, I think balance is probably pretty important. I think that's fair. And I think the other thing I think about when I think about balance is sort of balancing the power that you're getting from these muscles, right? It's like, yes, you need them right away and you may need them a lot, but you don't need them too much or too mm -hmm. little because that you miss, right? Like you fall. But if you have them just right, then you stay upright. And it's really those drills that you do when you're working on balance are about different inputs and sort of training your ability to find the right amount of muscular force from these smaller muscles to balance and offset different inputs that are coming into the system, right? Yep. So in terms of drills or exercises, um, we have talked in the past about core work and the, the biggest focus for cyclists is trying to get the bottom of our core to squeeze, like just below the belly button. Um, and that uh, your suggested cue is like someone's about to punch you in the stomach. And if, if you imagine someone punching you in the stomach, you involuntarily squeeze the area that we're hoping to squeeze while we ride. And actually, as a personal anecdote, I have been able to get that area to squeeze. And actually, it's a problem because... I'm now I'm getting sore in that area because I'm squeezing it enough to use it, but I'm not strong enough to resist the fatigue of it. So 
um, I am, you know, I'm, I'm on the way to having a good functional core, but, um, you know, my weakness is I, I'm getting a lot of soreness as a result of this pathway. But um, like you said, starting with uh, something like dead bugs laying on your back and having both your knees up and lowering one knee at a time and making sure your hips aren't moving at all and your spine isn't moving at all and slowly transitioning to pedaling while on your back without any motion. And then uh, in the long term, like mountain climbers is the the pinnacle and doing mountain climbers without any hip motion is, you know, you made it to the end of the the pathway, I think, for core. Um, in terms of balancing things, I, I would say um, my initial reaction is something like uh, partner medicine ball, uh, single leg standing, uh, where you toss, two people are standing, what, five yards apart, and you toss a medicine ball back and forth while you're standing on one leg. And so you have to dynamically stabilize that leg while catching the medicine ball. That could be a, a good potential balancing exercise. Yeah. And, it, you know, you start off throwing nicely, right? Like throw it, throw it where it's easy to catch and then you can adjust over time and sort of be mean about it and, and make it harder for your partner to catch intentionally. So they have to you know, start to move, move a little bit and then respond dynamically to, um, catching a ball that's further outside the base of support and it's more of a dynamic challenge to the balance. I think that's great. Uh, sometimes if you don't have a partner, but you have a very sturdy wall that you're not going to throw the, the medicine ball through and it, you have one of the types that bounce a bit, uh, you can, you can stand on one leg and you can bounce it against the wall or toss it against the wall and yeah. create the same sort of a situation there. I think that's good. Um, you know, even just single leg, uh, Romanian deadlifts is great. If you have a, a ball there or something, that can work. Uh, single leg balance standing with your eyes closed. Single leg balance standing mm-hmm. and, and turning your head. Single leg balance standing, turn your head, but focused on one point in front of you. All, all these things are just different challenges for all the systems that have to coordinate to keep you balanced. And, and this actually goes back to our fixing your dysfunctional muscles uh, suggestion because uh, if you have issues with some of these balance exercises you're probably not able to engage all of these muscles that you need to stabilize the knee throughout the pedal stroke there is clearly some correlation here between these different muscles yeah i think that's fair it's and it's just then becomes a question of well is it you know the force producing capacity of the muscle or is it the timing or you know both of course but you know, trying to troubleshoot which which it is, and then digging in and doing the specific things that need to be done in order to address that limitation. Yeah, and it is, I know, definitely complicated. And um, there are, like we said, with the core work, there are uh, different levels to step up into. And don't be afraid to pick a level and then decide it's too much or it's too little. Uh, most likely, though, if you don't have a lot of experience, it's probably too much. And uh, appreciating the fact that, you know, I haven't done a lot of core work, so I'm going to start with the easy one and I'm going to make sure that I'm doing it properly. So then I can eventually move up and having the humility and the, the patience to actually go through it. And that's something that we, you know, we have all, you know, kind of all the time in the world, unfortunately, to slowly progress. And we should take advantage of that to do it the right way. Yeah, I think that's the key. And I, I've seen a lot of people who will tell me like, oh, yeah, I can do a plank for three minutes. And then I ask them to do a plank. Well, sure. But that's not actually how one does a good plank. And then you correct their form and 20 seconds and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm cooked. I'm done. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you weren't using the right muscles before when you worked up to three minutes. Like, good job. I, you know, I applaud your tenacity, but you weren't really doing it right. So you didn't, you know, you spent a lot of three minutes not getting a ton of value out of the exercise so i think to your point if you start easier and build yourself up make sure you do it right you're going to get a lot more value than saying like ah, i'm just gonna i'm gonna do this plank because plank seems like a good thing to do it, it may be like you may be at that level or you may not and if you're not you're probably wasting your time or you're certainly not getting the value out of it that you could if you're doing it properly sure and in terms of uh sort of guiding people to the core exercises that are going to be most beneficial. I, I gave one progression that you recommended for uh, you know cyclists with their core, but um, 
are are you worried about people having uh, enough things to do or um, is you know all we you can look up core exercises on YouTube there's tons of blogs where people have core exercises that they like is it good enough to just follow those and start easy and slowly progress into getting better at them I would say that's better than nothing at least I would agree with that I would say if your goal is cycling then we want to be fairly specific to the cycling motion right and that's why I like uh, a mountain climber as a pinnacle because it, it represents what you're trying to do in cycling you want your core to be solid you want your your arms are going to be stationary you're, you're going to be you know relatively in that position with the trunk forward and the um, prone basically and your legs are going to be moving one at a time like this is this is a pretty good representation of what you're trying to do on the bike uh, so i think that that makes sense and then you know if you're not at that level then you just back off right so then you do just a plank without your legs moving and maybe a half plank if you're not there yet uh, maybe you start in quadruped and you just work on lifting one leg back or, or lifting up one arm even right and if you're not quite at that level then you know maybe you do the dead bug where your spine supported instead of being um, free that you have, you have to stabilize it maybe you just start instead of dead bug with just picking up one leg at a time right so there's all these different variations of this theme that you can go through uh, like that i think that's like the simplest progression <laughs> you know just maybe like a regression but um i think that's the simplest way to do it but there's a bajillion different core exercises i mean I, you could argue that a squat is a core exercise you know if you're doing a, a squat with a barbell you need to be engaging your core to a certain extent to be able to do that properly. Well, you could put all the weight on your spine if you wanted to. <laughs> Good. Your back's going to hurt. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot, I think one of the things that we maybe miss is like, oh, well, I need to do these core exercises. Yes, true, probably. But a lot of the exercises that you're already doing shouldn't involve the core. I really think about core exercises in a certain way as being a way that you become familiar with those muscles. Yes, that is where my rectus femoris is, or sorry, rectus abdominis. And yes, that's where my transverse abdominis is. Great. Like I feel it. Those are my obliques. Right? And understanding that so that you can put them to use and call them to action when you're doing a sprint and stabilize your trunk and really get the power down to the pedals. So um, I'm going to try and interpret what you're saying. We're doing core specific work in order to train our brain to use the core during the exercises or the events that we actually want to use it in. And so for using me as an example, I know I can feel now that I'm using my core while riding. And we want to train the core and we want to use the core during the exercises that we're supposed to be doing, like riding our bike or for a runner sprinting, like things like that. And the core exercises are just a way for us to teach our body and cue our body to actually do those things when they're supposed to be done. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe you improve the, the overall force capacity of the core, right. Or maybe the endurance of the core, right. So it can, you make your abdominal muscles a little bit stronger so they can resist a little bit more force coming up from the legs and provide you a little bit more stability. And therefore you can pedal a little bit harder. Uh, I think, you know, but really, you know, if you think about riding a bike, right, it's an endurance activity. So that core needs to be engaged, not necessarily forcefully, but for a long time. And then maybe for short periods of time forcefully. But I would, I would reckon that if you're doing mountain climbers, that's engaging your core much more forcefully uh, than, you know, 98% of your bike riding time. Right. And so I guess the, uh, the point here is if you have, if you don't have the opportunity to ride your bike, this is a great time to work on your core in order for it to be strong enough to start to be used in a meaningful way during your event. And, you know, some people, their core just doesn't squeeze at all. And they they aren't using it. And teaching it to squeeze is the biggest first step. That's the biggest hurdle is when you start to feel it engage while you're riding, that's a big step to say, okay, well, now we're using this correctly and we can start to develop it into a stronger core. But the first step is to actually use it in the first place. Yeah, you, you have to find it. You have to be aware of it. And you, you have to sort of have that connection, that, that mind-body connection, if you want to call it that. But to really have the, the orders come down from the brain and be heard 
in the core so that there's actually action activation of those muscles in the way that we want to provide the stability that we need. Yep. And actually I have as a little star in my notes on, uh, on balancing core. It's, uh, should we take this time as well to work on our bone density? We had a recent episode on, on bone density and is now a good time to do some jumping exercises and some landing exercises to get us a little bit more bone density. Why not? I mean, if you, you know, it's simple, right? You can, you don't even need equipment really, right? You mean you can hop in place or if you have stairs, you can, you know, do some, some hopping up on the stairs. If you have a jump rope, that works pretty well too. And you get a little aerobic benefit out of that as well. That's my go-to personally. It's got the jump rope and, and get mm-hmm. that out and, and work on that for a couple minutes. I think and also a coordination drill too. Yeah. Yeah. Jump rope is, uh, I, th- I think there aren't many downsides to jump rope, uh, from what I've read. And, um, for me in terms of, uh, th- exercises that I like to do that can improve your bone density is, um, single leg drop downs. So if you have a block that's 12 inches, 18 inches off the ground, uh, drop off on a single leg and stabilize yourself on that leg. It's a good stabilization exercise. It gives you that impact to, uh, you know, elicit more bone cell growth. And it's also a good way to see if uh, your glutes are engaged and, you know, make, make sure everything's stabilized when you land and you can slowly increase the height uh, to higher. But uh, I, w- I would start, I would start at like 12 inches. Uh, for most yeah, people. I mean, again, even off of a stair, right? Off a single stair is good just to start to to train the technique and yep. make sure you're you're absorbing the shock well. Yep, and then you can start to do stuff like having a medicine ball in your hand or hold the medicine ball out to the side while you jump, and because that'll engage different muscles because you have to stabilize not directly down like you would normally would. Yep, absolutely. So uh, that's my list. Uh, if you have something else, Todd, now would be the time. No, I mean, I think we covered my things, right? Which were some, some amount of writing for some specific reasons, some stretching, uh, and then some strength and exercise, which I would include core in that as well. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, our first remote episode uh, in the books. Uh, Todd, uh, any, any last comments? Well, I think I think it went smoothly. We'll we'll find out later. You'll you'll find out if you're listening to this if it went smoothly or not. <laughs> Apo- apologies if it didn't. Um, but thanks thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy out there. And um, if if you're luckier or more fortunate than I am, where you can ride your bike more than five miles, um, and even if you can't, I would encourage you as always to keep the rubber side down.